0: Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews for an Evangelical Encounters the Restoration. I'm your host uh, Stephen Peideker, and uh, got a got a buddy on here. Really excited to have you back on. Jonathan, welcome back to the program. I'm happy to be here. So this is Jonathan Neville. Of course, my audience knows and loves uh, his work. Uh, he's not without controversy, but I think as people have gotten to know him and better understand where he's coming from, I think he's also picked up some new fans as a result of the show as well. But before we go there, I want to say a few things to my audience um now many of you know that i do have a, a production assistant named uh, a- anthony and uh a personal tragedy befell him recently now when he started working for my channel he was 19 years old he's just turned 20. he's just kind of on the cusp of starting to live his own life and something really bad happened to him and i'll say that anthony's had a has a bit had a bit of a tough life and um you know, he, he caught the vision for this channel early on. And uh, the reason why the, this channel looks the way that it looks and sounds the way that it looks because of Anthony. And I just, I just want to thank you, Anthony, for everything you've done for this channel. Early on, I was saying something about the channel. We were just starting, and he already had the vision of doing a green screen and all this, and I didn't have that vision. And I I made a comment about something, about cutting a corner, he said, Steve, we don't cut corners, because you're Mormon book reviews. And that that stands for something. And uh, so you were an inspiration to me, man. And I also want to say that, you know, as a 19-year-old, now you're 20. Um, kind of a hero to me. So I just want to share that. And I also want to announce to my audience that um, Anthony has uh, received an internship with a film producer in California who is going to help us uh, produce episodes now. Um, we're going to start doing that next week. And Anthony's, is his internship is going to be working for this channel. And I also just want to announce that I'm going to, uh, I'm promoting Anthony to producer of Mormon Book Reviews. So Good job, Anthony. Really appreciate everything you're doing. Sorry, folks, didn't mean to get emotional there, and sorry <laughs> Which to you on the spot there, Jonathan. But just think of the uh, think of the book review I did last week of your chant of your um, Jonathan Edwards book. Look how beautiful that turned out. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was gorgeous. Well done. And I just and want to know. Again.
0: Yeah, and every Anthony taught himself everything. He never just done video stuff. He designed my logo. He's just he's helped me with the green screen. He's learning on learning the first time he's building my website, everything. So either way, uh, thanks That's again, awesome. Anthony. It really is. So I thought it was cool um, that everything he's done. And so I, I appreciate you, Anthony. So now we get on to the, uh, to the interview. And part of the reason why Jonathan wanted to come back on is he kind of want to just kind of go do an overview of events and different guests that I've had, and just a lot of different things that have happened on the channel, as well as just have happened out there within the, mormon scholarship community and the mormon studies community and also just things that are being talked about online and uh so we 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 decided we wanted to talk first of all one of the things was kind of do a response to hannah syriac's uh, nationalism uh in the uh, heartland movement and so we're going to talk about that but since right now the hot topic and basically the only place that gave a response to the who killed joseph smith movie has been my channel that's part of the reason why it's taken off i just wanted to get maybe your 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 take on it Jonathan what this whole uh, you've seen the movie you've seen both the interviews Mm -hmm. just kind of give me your your thoughts off the top
1: of your head okay sure I you know I used to practice law and so I had lots of cases criminal cases and so on and it's it's almost impossible to ever determine exactly what happened in history even if it happened yesterday you know I've talked about this often where you'll have a car accident there's several witnesses they all describe something different and that's, there's a lot of reasons for that. It's our, the filters that we use when we see things, different things capture our attention. is, and so on. I understand what he was trying to do. He felt like the previous efforts to explain all the evidence were inadequate. So he sought a, an alternative that was maybe more explanatory. But as, as your interview pointed out, his, in the, the rebuttal, he, he overlooked a lot of evidence, for one thing. But the other problem is he he, he approached it with a, an agenda in mind. And as soon as you do that, you're going to sculpt the evidence, or what I call manipulate the evidence, to fit your theory. In fact, we'll talk later about this faith model that I've got here, which kind of explains that psycholo- psychology of how we assess evidence. But in this case, I think he he went a little too, um, I don't want to say too far, he presented another hypothesis. So you you know how much I appreciate having multiple working hypotheses. And I've heard alternatives to the ones he presented as well. So everybody has a theory, and you can always find some fact that kind of fits your theory. (laughs) But overall, I think it was... um, he was a little bit too dogmatic about his own theory. He didn't really critique himself as like he did the others.
0: Okay, well, it's good to hear your point of view on that. Um, uh, Yeah, I think it it was an interesting, uh, I mean, obviously folks, both the videos, uh, the interviews have taken off. Uh, Kimberly Watson Smith Mm -hmm. and Justin Griffin, both Griffin came on my program and uh, I was glad to be able to be that forum uh, to have that conversation. And uh, speaking of conversations and providing a forum, um, and a platform, one of the things I'm really uh, proud of with our channel is to introduce Jonathan Neville to a much larger audience. Um, so I guess let's just kind of start with where one of the reasons you wanted to come back on was my interview with Hannah Sariak, where she talked about um, uh, uh, far-right nationalism uh, and the Heartland movement, which you're part mm-hmm. of. And I just kind of mm-hmm. want you to maybe just tell me a little bit of your, some of your thoughts and reactions to that interview.
1: Okay, yeah, I, I had been fairly oblivious to this angle of attack on the Heartland stuff. What I call, most of your viewers know, I call the Mesoamerican thing M2C for Mesoamerican two Camorras. And the, the gist of their argument is that despite the, what we have in church history, the real Hill Camorra described in Mormon 66 in the LDS edition is in Southern Mexico, not in New York. And so they have this idea that there's two Camoras, the false one in New York and the real one down in Mexico. And the Heartland ideas, and, and when I say Heartland, I, I'm reframing that a little bit to say Camora centric as you can see on my chart here, <laughs> because Heartland has acquired some baggage partly due to the efforts of the Mesoamerican supporters, like Hannah and, and you know, her peers or her friends. And so uh, when I I didn't I didn't realize how much they had been trying to link heartland to nationalism and she brought that out really well and she pointed she had some good uh, references and and examples of some so-called heartlanders who have been and i use that term in quotes because it's not really an organization of of people who sign up for anything it's just people who have affinity for what the early church leaders taught about Gomorrah. and it makes sense to us and the heartland nomenclature really, as I understand it, was um, adopted by Rod Meldrum because his idea of the geography was focused in the heartland of America. Uh, you know, Recently, President Nelson spoke in Oklahoma or to the Saints in Oklahoma and Kansas and referred to them as the heartland. That's, that's a common term for that part of the United States. And so the idea of the heartland um, scenario, uh, model, however you want to frame it, is that Camorra is in New York, and therefore the rest of the Book of Mormon took place somewhat in a limited geography focused on New York. So the, the Mesoamerican theory was er- originally developed in the early 1900s. The first M2C map really was published in 1917, I think it was, by an RLDS scholar named Ellie Hills. And then his his theory was that Camorra was in, in Southern Mexico, just like the BYU people teach us today. And so over time, that that theory has acquired more credibility to the point where it's the dominant theory. It's embedded in the logo of Book of Mormon Central, for example, and farms. And um, all the uh, Fair Mormon material is all geared towards defending the M2C idea and attacking the New York Gomorrah. And so I, I thought, okay, if we're talking about the evidence, then we have all the church history, we have uh, the teachings of the prophets, and then we have the, the extrinsic evidence consisting of archaeology, anthropology, geography, and all the sciences. And if you do a side by side comparison of those, which I've done many times, then people can see that and make their own choice. And I think that the Mesoamerican people recognize the weakness of their position because basically they're saying that Joseph and Oliver misled everybody and all the other prophets have misled everybody. And so for them, an effective technique to attack the Heartland idea is to invoke this nationalism idea. And that's the idea that some of the people who accept the Heartland also are, let's say, um, right-wing or conservative politically, they they focus on America as the most important country, things like the nationalistic ideas that Hannah expressed. And I, you know, I, I was oblivious to that, frankly, because when I got into this, it, it, politics had nothing to do with it. And she pointed out that yeah, I've spoken at Heartland events where there's been other uh, conservative speakers. And I said, well, we've also, at that conference, I've also been shared a stage with people who talk about the Mesoamerican theory. It's not, and, and there's a spread, wide spectrum of political beliefs there as well. And so I never really identified myself as with the nationalistic ideology, okay? And besides, I know people from all political views and non-Americans who couldn't care less about American politics, who all embrace the New York Camorra. So this was, I I think they've they've been trying to make a link there to discredit the, the Heartland idea, not because of what the prophets have said, not because of the evidence, not because of the text, but solely to link it to something that they find politically distasteful that they can criticize. So it's really a, you know, a straw man argument in my view. So um,
0: it's very, you know, I just wanna point out a couple of things too, folks, you know, at the Firm Foundation events, um, Rod Mildrum has had, also had evangelicals speak at his group. Yeah. Um, there's actually been elected officials and, and other folks that have talked to his event as well. Um, so it's not like
1: it's th- that far out of the mainstream.
0: But... You know,
1: as, as soon as you mentioned that, I reminded there's far more diversity at firm foundation events than there is at any of the Mesoamerican stuff. And they won't even have me come speak because I'm not a Mesoamerican proponent. And they won't have anyone who disagrees with their orthodoxy about Mesoamerica. And so if you if you anyone looking for diversity can't go to the Book of Mormon Central. Fair Mormon, the interpreter, that crowd, because they all say the same thing and they're adamant about promoting their idea.
0: Well, and Thomas Murphy uh, even pointed out in his critique of Broad, he also made a point to say that, you know, kudos to the Firm Foundation for hearing and listening uh, to Native American voices where they come on yeah. and speak. That's right you know they do and, yeah. and we don't have that necessarily happening too much of the firm foundation. So this is nice. uh, it's, it's not as black and white as people might think it is. Uh, uh, you know, um, and speaking of the firm Foundation, just uh, let my audience know that I've been in touch with Rod and I gave him a proposal of a presentation I'd like to give to his group, and he seems interested, so stay tuned. Yeah. Um, but um, I also just want to talk about so one of the points of this program is to try to build bridges um and not burn them but build them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and one of the things that has been very helpful is getting people to sit down with each other that normally wouldn't sit down and talk right. to each other like that Thomas Murphy and Rob Meldrum are going to have lunch one day that I know yeah <laughs> uh, and and um, and so I think what uh, behind the scenes I just want to point out that I've been in touch with Hannah and I've been in touch with Jonathan and I just I guess last week, you and Hannah had a two-hour telephone conversation with each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I, my attitude is I'm happy to talk to anybody. I'm a lot like you, although I'm not as um, forthcoming in terms of having, doing interviews. <laughs> and so kudos to you again for doing all this. And if I lived in Utah, I'd be different because I could go have lunch with people, but I'm hardly ever in Utah. So, uh, But I, I enjoy everybody's perspective. I really like learning from other people whether it's Thomas Murphy or Dan Vogel or John Delin or Brant Gardner or you know, anybody. And so for me, having a dialogue is more important than, than trying to win any points. So Hannah is awesome. She's very smart, obviously. She's fairly uh, up-to-date on issues and so on. And I enjoyed the conversation quite a bit. I think, I think some of the conclusions or the things that she has presented were a result of her not communicating with people and, she, and relying on blogs and things like that instead of having a conversation. And at the same time, I, I told her I, was, I appreciated what she'd done because I've had, since she's brought these issues to my attention more, I've been telling Heartlanders, look, you guys should never be mixing politics and religion. It just, it's a bad combination. And all it does is when, when you link politics and religion that way, Anyone who has a different political view rejects the religious view, even though it it should be considered independently. You know, even when I moved here to Oregon, I had some some people in Utah tell me they couldn't believe I would move to a a blue state, for example, you know? And to me, none of the states are red or blue. They're all basically green and blue because they have trees and water, you know, so. I just, the people in Oregon are awesome. It doesn't matter what your politics are, humans are humans, you know, and you can be great people regardless of your politics. And the other thing is detaching politics and religion helps us assess each one on its own merits. And that's where I think the the M2C people have made a big mistake because they're trying to link Heartland to politics to prevent people from looking at the Heartland on its own merits. I was in a meeting once, I won't get into the details with some MTCers, and and I, we were talking about having a um, side-by-side comparison. Let's just put the facts out there. All the facts should be on the table, and then we can have our different hypotheses or interpretations, as we'll talk about in this faith model in a minute. And they didn't want to do it because they said, well, if we did that, most people, most Latter-day Saints would go with the Heartland stuff. And that's, I think that's true. I think most people would. So I, I, I have to acknowledge their persuasion tactic being successful of trying to link the heartland to nationalism, but it's, I hope people aren't misled by that. It's, it's a false connection. I mean, sure you can find evidence of it because everybody expresses political views, but there's plenty of evidence that it goes far beyond nationalism. It has nothing to do with nationalism originally anyway.
0: So yeah, I, uh, I'm glad again you guys were able to have that conversation yeah. with each other. We'll see where that goes. Maybe we'll do, do do something down the
1: road together. And and just so you know, I'm happy to have conversations with anybody you have on your show because <laughs> I every one you've done so far has been really interesting. Oh, and I've met wow. several like Chris Thomas. You put me together with Chris Thomas too, and he's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. We had a really good time,
0: so. Yeah, it's, it is great to, to know all these conversations are happening that wouldn't otherwise happen. Um, yeah. So, you know, I did I did have a quick question because I, I, I want us to talk about maybe also your reaction to some of what Dan Vogel had to say. And we can maybe mm-hmm. open this up a little bit and go back and forth on a few things. Uh, one of the questions I had for you was I... I'm trying to remember if this was on my two and a half hour interview with Dan Vogel or this is part of my three hour off the record conversation I had with Dan Vogel <laughs> so I, 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 I think it's in the interview but basically he comments that um, around 1831 or so there was a newspaper man who recorded that Oliver Cowdery said that the landing spot of Lehi's party was in Chile
1: um, yeah. okay can you maybe just give me your reaction to that well, if, first off, I it's hard to tell. I, I don't remember that exact reference. I'd have to look at it again. But newspaper reporters, there, there are several instances where they would um, hear different things, different rumors or whatever, and put them in the report. And it's as I recall, it wasn't a direct quotation that uh, something Oliver Cowdery said. It was his characterization of what he's claimed Oliver and his associates said, and so. You know, it's it's a pretty thin reed to hang that whole thing on, and it, you know, it's the whole issue with uh, what was his name, Frederick G. The Frederick G. Williams' notation about the thirty degrees. Mm-hmm. And when I look at that, I, I thought, well, what what could what are some possible explanations? What are multiple working hypotheses? And what if what if, for example, Joseph said Lehi landed at thirty degrees latitude, and then they they assumed from that that he was talking about in the south, 30 degrees south. But what if he was talking about 30 degrees north? Then he's land then Lehi would have landed in the Florida area, which is roughly the same latitude as Jerusalem. And then often you'll see in, in history and even witness testimony today and so on. People will hear one fact and then they'll infer other facts and report the inferences as facts. And I think that's a lot of that stone in the hat stuff is consists of that type of evidence as well. But in this case, I'm thinking he, he, they, they made a point of 30 degrees latitude. Now, if that's all Joseph said, and then they inferred the rest, that would explain how they could come up with this Chilean hypothesis. But even when Orson Pratt did the footnotes in the Book of Mormon, and he mentioned Chile as the landing spot of Lehi, he didn't say it as a fact. He said something like it is believe that or, you know, we, we suppose that worse to that effect. I have the book here somewhere if you want to look it up. Whereas when he talked about New York Camorra, he didn't say it's supposed that. He says Camora is in Manchester, New York. That was considered a fact. And Oliver Cowdery had established that as a fact. And so when you compare what Oliver wrote in letter seven and, and letter eight, where he, he's clearly explained that it was a fact that the Hill Cumorah of Mormon 66 where the final battles were in the repositories in New York versus, uh, you know, a speculative or uncertain newspaper article from Ohio in 1831. Those are those are completely different levels of uh, credibility in terms of evidence. Now, the other thing is, I'd say that even let's say the newspaper reporter had accurately reported that. But Oliver never said it publicly. He didn't put it in any of those eight historical letters. And so it's possible that he had heard something Frederick G. Williams had, had come up with, you know, and then later realized that it didn't make sense. So he didn't put it in when he talked about Book of Mormon geography and letter seven. Okay. Yeah. I just thought it was, yeah. I thought
0: it was important to address that point that he made.
1: I'm glad you brought that up though, because I love Dan Vogel's research. You know, I have several of his books, early Mormon documents, and he's done an amazing job on this research, better than anybody else that I know of, really. Yeah. And the Joseph Smith papers frequently refers to things that he's found, you know. Mm-hmm. So I give yeah. him kudos for all that.
0: Yeah, I think I think he's he's rendered an invaluable service to early Mormonism. That's yeah. my most that area is the most fascinating area of of history as well and so i've been reading vogel for a very very long time and really do appreciate your work Dan, and everything you do um so let's see here we well you were gonna did
1: you want to talk about thomas murphy too yeah i i want you to talk about thomas
0: murphy um and also um uh, Rod Meldrum's presentation. We could talk touch based on that because I want to talk maybe a little about young Earth creationism and stuff okay. too that we could talk about. But let's 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 go with Thomas Murphy now. Thomas um, really was a fantastic guest because he took um, rather than dismiss the Heartland model, he actually took it seriously. Now you may not like his conclusions, but he took the time to read the books, do the research, find some merit in some of the research. And, uh, and, and have a conversation, which I think is so important. Yeah. So so it actually, if anything, it kind of brought the Heartlanders now a little bit more, people are taking it a little more seriously because Thomas Murphy's taking it seriously. Right. Um, so maybe just kind of give me your impressions of, of Thomas's presentation and where he was coming from.
1: Well, as I understand it, he, he basically was referring to the uh, two things really. One was my Jonathan Edwards work he pointed out how which i pointed out also but he agreed that jonathan edwards was a missionary to the indians and was attempting to convert the indians and and um it was um i'm trying to remember the guy's name he he did the journal of the missionary to the indians i can't believe i I read this book all the time i can't remember his name but um so there was a long history of course of trying to convert the indians to christianity and the native americans there especially particularly in new york and in fact I, i've pointed out too that um, edward's son was uh, he sent his son to be a missionary to the indians and his son went and lived with the indians learned their language and and it was all along the susquehanna river interestingly not far from harmony and that's where we get into what the head of the river means and so on but there was a lot of um discussion about the Native Americans and Christianity before Joseph Smith came along. Edwards died in, I think it was 1758 or seven. And so it was you know 60 years before Joseph was even born that Edwards had written all this stuff. And so as, as Thomas Murphy brought out, these ideas about um, how, how would we create a uh, Christian community for Native Americans, what would it look like and so on, was pretty well known as well as the theories about their origins as being the Lost Tribes of Israel. So in Thomas's idea is that when Joseph came along, he kind of adopted or uh, embraced the prevailing theories and came up with the Book of Mormon as a narrative. And, and that's kind of what Dan Vogel thinks too, as I understand that. He wrote his first book, as I recall, was the ancient or the Native American origins of the Book of Mormon. Okay, so I look at that and I say, yeah, okay, that's, we are all looking at the same facts. What are possible interpretations? Theirs is definitely a, a working hypothesis that they embrace, and a lot of other people do. I look at that and I say, well, there's a there's a key factor here that um, the Book of Mormon explains that otherwise we don't have explanations for, and that is kind of the pre-European times. If you go back further in history, before the Europeans arrived, the ancient civilizations in North America were the Adena and the Hopa, two different ones. Joseph Smith's time, no one had distinguished between those. Both of those civilizations left no writing that we know of, and yet they left sophisticated uh, earthworks. In fact, I didn't mean to bring this up, but I have this nearby. I have this book by um, Squires and Davis that shows a lot of the earthworks in north america i don't know if people are familiar with these but a lot of these are very uh sophisticated and mathematically uh, oriented you can see here's a few of them these are all in ohio or mostly in ohio and when you look at that you think well it's pretty hard to imagine that they didn't have some kind of writing to be able to communicate over these long distances and so on so the book of mormon in my view, is really a history of these people. And the way Joseph interpreted it was according to his own language. And so instead of having the Book of Mormon as a result of the European, maybe I could draw it up on here and show you, but instead of it being a result of European interference or incursion, let's say, into America, the Book of Mormon goes earlier than that and relates the narrative of the people that were here before the Europeans ever came. And so I, I understand where uh, Dan and um, uh, Thomas are coming from on this. It makes sense. But I think the exact same facts support the narrative that Joseph Smith gave. The other thing I think is, I mean, we could talk about this. We didn't <laughs> spend a whole session on it. But another interesting thing about the uh, mound builder theory is the mountain builder theory that Dan talks about is not what's in the Book of Mormon. And Oliver Cowdery, in in his letter seven, again, made a clear distinction. He said it was not that the the wicked killed the righteous. It's that the wicked killed the wicked. And I think that was partly him addressing the mound builder theory. You know, it's interesting, too, that in the late 1800s, one of the the primary critical books, the anti-Mormon books, said that the Book of Mormon could not have taken place in North America because we know there is only one ancient civilization in North America. The Book of Mormon says there were two. And that's what led Ellie uh, Hills and um, Stebbins to create the Mesoamerican Tukumorra series. But after the 1900s, after that book was published, is when archaeologists started recognizing there were actually two ancient civilizations. The Adena were older and the Opal were less old, which correspond to the timeframes in the Book of Mormon. So that <laughs> it's ironic that the, the main criticism of the Book of Mormon in the 1900s was that the Book of Mormon described something that science hadn't discovered. And then in the 1900s, they did discover what the Book of Mormon claimed all along. So really they, what I see Dan and, um, and Thomas doing is looking at it a little too narrowly. They're, they're not considering how the Book of Mormon describes those pre-European, early uh, North Americans. And that's a discussion we could have another time, but that's just how I look at it.
0: Well, one of the things Thomas mentioned was, because I brought that up, like, okay, what about this idea that the dates of the Adina roughly followed the Jaredites and the Hopewell? And he says, there is not a distinction. He said that they're, right. both, they're, they're the same people.
1: Uh, yeah. Maybe speak to that. Well, I know he said that and and this this brings up another fascinating thing we could do a whole session on the Jaredites problem <laughs> because the Book of Mormon distinguishes between them but only because Moroni said that he was giving a history of the people in this north country he started off by saying that and because we, you know Albert Cowdery explained when Moroni came he told Joseph that the book was written and deposited not far from his house which to me means Mormon and Moroni lived not far from Joseph's house. And so when Moroni was talking about this North country, that's what he was talking about, the New York region. And that doesn't mean it excluded all the other Jaredites. In fact, when I think of Jaredites, he had Jared and his brother, and then their friends, right? And the Book of Ether is only a record of Ether's ancestors. And if you go out 33 generations, that's a pretty small little fragment of the entire society. And so the people who think the Olmecs, for example, were Jaredites, I'm totally good with that. That makes sense because I think they arrived up in the Vancouver area in British Columbia and there's a Native American tribe that has a tradition that fits. And I've I've talked about all this before. And then they spread out throughout the land and it explains why there's Asian DNA throughout the Americas because they crossed Asia to get here. And there's a lot more to it. But I think what um, Thomas Murphy's getting at is They were the same people in a sense, but they were different enough to be distinguished. They had different types of mounds that they built. They had different cultural practices. And and the record of the Adena is fairly, um, it's not as detailed as it is of the Hopewell because they're more ancient. And a lot of the Hopewell built on top of Adena structures and so on. But the Book of Mormon doesn't say they were two people. In fact, lots of scholars have pointed out that the Book of Mormon names after the the people of uh, Mosiah joined with the people of Zarahemla, all of a sudden these Jaredite type names start popping up. And so there was a distinct culture, but also indication that they were combined as well. It's, so when I look at that, I think, OK, we, we it is clear that the Adena were here long before the Hopewell, we we know from the dating. It's also apparent, from, and Thomas Murphy would know this better than I do, that Adena culture kind of merged into Popo culture, but not completely. They were still distinct. And that's how the Book of Mormon describes it.
0: And, I just, and just to reference Hugh Nibley, Hugh Nibley uh, proposed essentially that the Jaredites were uh, probably Asiatic in, in their right. background. And also Hugh Nibley uh, made that point about how there's these Jaredite names that start appearing mm-hmm. In in into the narrative, uh, right. most notably with some of the antichrists, if you will, of the Book of Mormon. Uh, so it almost wow. seems like it seems because that was like one of the biggest weakest points about the Heartland model is that you have these. Yes, you have the Hopewell and yes, you have the Adena, but there's also overlap that they would have right. known about each other. It would yeah. have been impossible. Wow. Yeah, so that answers that question, I guess, if you will, um, that they knew of these people. And they did finally include their history into the record, mm-hmm. but it sounds to me, it just the, the very nature of the Book of Ether is that it is just a, an overall summary. Uh, it's, it's very short, obviously, yeah. it doesn't, but it's covering a lot of period of time. Um, and so it, it obviously seems to indicate that there was a lot more to, obviously, the civilization uh, within the context of, the, of, of this world uh, that, that they would have had Um, a lot more to say, (laughs) their history.
1: uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, just think of a family tree. Ether relates his genealogy going back 33 plus generations, right? He knows exactly who, in two places he says, was a descendant of. So that genealogy is a little vague in those spots. But for the most part, he can trace his genealogy all the way back. If you go the other way and start at the top with the brother of Jared and branch out, you've got an enormous branch of family throughout. And that doesn't even include their friends, right? So the idea that all the Jaredites, everybody, all the descendants of everybody who came on those boats with Jared and his brother were killed at Kimura, I mean that the text doesn't even suggest or imply, much less state that. A lot of people bring up this idea, and I think um, the M2C guys have, have adopted this idea, too, that there were 2 million people killed at Camorra. That's not what the text says at all. In fact, it has, Corian- this is, Corianterer talks about two millions of my people were killed. That was several years before Kimora. And when I read it, it to me, it, it, it's like he's thinking about his entire genealogy, going back 33 generations. And, and he could see and Ether had prophesied this would happen, but he could see how the, the things that Ether was prophesying had happened in throughout his history. It's like when we say, how many Americans have died in war? We don't just think of the Iraq War, we go all the way back to the Civil War or even the Revolutionary War or even the Indian Wars before that. So that's and that makes the whole makes more sense because when you look at the, I guess we're I'm digressing back to this Kimura-centric idea but when you read Ether and he talks about the final battle of the Jaredites, he said he gives us the last three days how many people were killed, right? And I did a little spreadsheet going back for the whole week, and it was under 10,000 people. And it's very interesting that when Oliver Cowdery wrote letter seven, and he talked about the Jaredites, he said there were thousands. He didn't even say tens, tens of thousands for the Jaredites. And that's what the text says. And that that makes all the sense in the world to me, that it was Ether's line. By the time they got to Qura, there were less than 10,000 of them, and they killed each other off. So I don't know
0: if I should... Uh-huh bring this name up, but I'm going to. So a few years ago, I came across a video of Dan Peterson giving a presentation on the Book of Ether in Italy, I believe. So I was okay. really excited. I'm like, all right, <laughs> I'm going to get me some Book of Ether knowledge here, and I'm going to really go. have a better understanding of the book. And uh, I came away from the presentation not knowing much more about the Book of Ether than going into it. And I just want yeah. to say, and I'm not bashing you, Dan, but
1: Please you know, tell me more, <laughs> but the, the more than what you gave in that presentation. Well, what can they say? I mean, they've, they've been on record saying that it had to be 2 million people or this massive army. That's why they're looking for a huge mountain in southern Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's, it's called the hill Camorra. It's not called the Mount Camorra, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, Oliver Cowdery knew all these issues. He knew about the mound builder myth. He knew about the um, amount number of people who could have died in that valley, and he addressed all that early on. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's just amazing to me that here we are, what is this, almost 200 years after Oliver Cowdery answered all these questions, people are rediscovering it, I guess. And that's mm-hmm. what leads to the Heartland idea.
0: You know, that's it's interesting wonderful. because in, when I read uh, Mark Twain's account of his uh, dissection of the Book of Mormon, essentially, right. it's actually a dissection of the Book of Ether. Yeah, I always found that interesting. It seemed like somebody must have said, just watched, just read this one chapter, you get the gist of it.
1: Yeah, you know, so, right.
0: so he didn't really engage the text that well. <laughs> no, no. So um, <laughs> I I wanted to just back up a little bit because I find, uh, I, because I have you here and these are questions I've always been wanting to ask believers and, and defenders of the Book of Mormon. And so I'm always curious to get your perspective on things. And that is um, to you, you, you believe that the Jaredites landed around Vancouver uh, are you are, are you assuming that they kind of hugged the the coast, uh, uh, go, uh, you know basically just followed yeah, the coastline, I'm... and and do you th- and what and and, yes. and just also describe to me the, the barges what you think they how they function. Well,
1: you know? <laughs> I, I'm not a, a shipbuilder or anything. Okay. I I know the when I was up in Vancouver, a friend of mine was in the public affairs up there, and he told me that some missionaries had contacted an Indian tribe up in uh, British Columbia. And they re- reported their origin narrative was that their ancestors arrived in clam-shaped uh, boats that were tight like a dish even, and inside they had glowing pearls. And I said, what? The- I've never heard of this. And so he actually emailed me uh, photos of their journals where they wrote what these Indians had told them, Okay, the First Nation people up in British Columbia. So of course I had, I I like to see for myself, right? So I went up there (laughs) to British Columbia and there's a museum there in in Vancouver and they have a a sculpture depicting this uh, narrative. And it's kind of a clamshell opening and these guys are crawling out of it with the raven there. And so, and I've I've talked about this before but to me, that is um, at least analogous to these barges that the Book of Ether talks about. And you know how myths are created and they're based on some facts sometimes and then they're, they're interpreted for uh, mystical or uh, you know instructional reasons and so on. But this narrative really appealed to me. So then I thought, well, I live here on the Oregon coast and when there was a tsunami in Japan, there was a dock that floated all the way from Japan, landed up here north of us a little ways. And it took 300 and some days to get here, which is roughly what the Jaredites took. And so when I look at that, I think, okay, if they left from China, which a lot of people think, it's a little bit farther than Japan, not that much farther, but the time is about right to just be drifting over here. And as I read the Book of Ether, it it implies more of a drifting kind of a scenario than uh, sailing, for sure. And that fits with the the currents and what we observe today. So for me, that all makes sense. I mean, I can't, (laughs) the description of the barges in the Book of Ether, as I read it, is Joseph Smith trying to explain what the text said, he probably couldn't figure it out either, so he, he did a fairly literal translation, but you know. I mean, when you think about it,
0: when you think that whether this is a, a something to bolster or to criticize the Book of Mormon, he uses the term barges, which is what yeah. they were used, they're
1: all over the place with the Erie Canal, uh, right, so that would be, right.
0: okay, let me think, you know, barges,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, something uh, that transport people and goods, you know, yeah. it's a barge.
0: Uh,
1: and Plus, don't forget, it was Moroni's uh, translation of the original that he had to translate. So it's a second iteration at minimum of what the original actually said. So yeah, yeah I, I mean, we could do a whole session on the oh. translation, which I don't think we've done that yet. But <laughs> well,
0: hey, we got time here. So I love yeah. I love I having you and to be able to ask these questions is really awesome. Um, I, I wanted, was there anything else about uh, Murphy and Dan Vogel that you wanted to well, I out.
1: appreciate them, them recognizing that only the, the, the quote-unquote Heartlanders are the only ones that still believe what the prophets have taught about Gomorrah, you know, which, which is really kind of amazing when you think about it. I, it was taught for 150, 180 years. It originated with the First Presidency in 1835, or it was actually before then, but um, it was formalized in 1835. Oliver Cowdery was the assistant president of the church. He was the designated spokesman to to teach all these things. Um, Joseph Smith had it copied into his journal as part of his life history. He had it republished in every Mormon newspaper during his lifetime. All all those things we've talked about. So it was so well established. And even, you know, the MTC guys up here, they all talk about uh, these 1842 Times and Seasons articles about Central America. Those articles don't say anything about Camorra. So, I mean, even if you want to accept those articles, it doesn't revoke what was clearly and definitively taught about Camorra. So I, as I look at all this, you have, um, can you make sense of, of the New York Camorra or not? I mean, if, let's, say, <laughs> let's say there is literally no way to make any sense of the New York Camorra that it had to be um, a false teaching then you, that undermines the credibility of everything Joseph and Oliver taught. But if there is a way to corroborate with science, with the same facts that uh, Dan and um, Thomas Murphy relate, you can use those same facts and corroborate what the prophets taught, then that's the way I go. Hmm. I, I just don't understand the mentality of trying to tell people, whether it's the youth in the church or whether it's uh, you know, non-LDS people that, yeah, Joseph and Oliver told the truth about everything except for Kimura and the translation. On well, those two, they misled everybody. Well, then the whole thing kind of implodes, right? They were either honest, accurate, forthright about everything, or they weren't. So I prefer to, to believe, based on the evidence, that they were honest and forthright and accurate, told the truth.
0: So one of the things that I find interesting is that the first presidency as recently as 1990 issued a statement that they believe that the events of the Book of Mormon uh, took place, the final battle took place at Cumorah. Now, what's so fascinating to me is it's the critics of the church, like Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real, that are showing, wait a second, guys, uh, why do you deny this letter? Uh, And they're trying to say there's this other letter that's out there that's never existed, apparently. Um, But before, I I just want to, Touch base I can, on that.
1: I, I, let's come back to that because I can tell you an update on that. Too.
0: Okay, and and but but before I go, we do that. I just want to say one thing. I know that this channel may appear to be Heartland centric, with guests and stuff like that. Now, of course, I've had Thomas Murphy on. I've had Dan Vogel on. But I also feel it's important that uh, faithful LDS or Restorationists um, who advocate the uh, the Mesoamerican model. Um, I have extended invitations to them. I have one individual who's in the process of writing a book um, that, uh, and then he and he's kind of mapping the Book of Mormon. And essentially I've asked him to come on because he's, he believes in the uh, uh, Mesoamerican model and uh, he's expressed interest in coming on. So I just wanna know, I'm gonna have a really good a- a expert come on. And, so I'm, a, sure. I'm excited about that. So, but he's still writing the book but we'll probably be talking to him soon. Um, so let's talk about that letter in 1990. Well, give me the update on okay. that.
1: Well, I, I don't know how much I can say yet, because I don't know if it's been released publicly or not. So let me just do this. If you read the letter, it doesn't state a, a position. All it does is state a fact. In fact, I, I don't have the letter here in front of me, but it 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 points out that there was um, uh, a long history of teaching that Kimura was in New York. I mean, it's never started with the first presidency in 1835 has never been revoked. And so how that letter became controversial, I have no idea. Because uh, I I mean, the history is there. I mean, as much as the Joseph Smith papers tries to hide the history because of the way they're editing the the notes and stuff in the Joseph Smith papers, and as much as the uh, people at Book of Mormon Central try to pretend the history doesn't exist, the history is there. You here's an example, Book of Mormon Central. Okay, when I first wrote my little book, Letter 7, I gave it to them to put on their webpage for free. And they had it on there for maybe a year or two. And finally, they took it down because they said too many people were looking at it. And to me, that's just an example of outright censorship. They don't want people to know the church history. And so all that little letter did in 1990, I mean, it was the most innocuous letter conceivable. It didn't do anything other than state what the history everybody can see. So, of course, the guys down at Farms, at the times I recall, freaked out because they didn't want to have a reaffirmation of the New York Camorra. Now, ironically, it was in, I think, 1975 was when uh, Marion G. Romney, who was a counselor in the First Presidency, gave a sp- talk specifically about Camorra. He had just been there for the pageant. He said, from the top of this hill, he was looking over where the final battles were and all that stuff. So, and that, So there's a member of the First Presidency as recently as 1975 talking about it. I think Marky e. Peterson talked about it in a few conferences after that. There's nothing controversial about the letter until these guys tried to, <laughs> so they, they had a fax. Well, RFM talked about it on the show. So anybody can go see that whole episode. He had two episodes and they were fantastic. All he did was state the facts and there will be an update in the next Maybe by the time this is put out it'll be public and you, I, I can give you a link to put on. But there is a, one new development along those lines and it reaffirms what RFM was saying, which was that Dan Peterson made up that other letter or at least. Uh, William Hamlin whichever one of them did it, they just made up this subsequent letter that never existed, All there was was a fax that reordered some of the statements from the Encyclopedia of Mormonism and that whole history. I mean, I've blogged about this, lots of people know about it. So it, it, but it is evidence of how desperate they are to to dissociate or to discredit the teachings of the prophets about Gomorrah. I mean, it's just unbelievable to me. So so I'm happy with people believing whatever they want. Don't get me wrong, yeah. So let's
0: let's talk a little bit about, Presentation that Rod Meldrum uh, did. And, and I want to thank Rod so much for coming on because, Rod, I mean, I've been a fanboy of yours for a long time. I really love you. Um, <laughs> yeah, it and was also, awesome. And, and I, it was really, it was a real honor for him to come on my program. Um, now, one of the things that was interesting to me is that I actually heard back from Thomas Murphy, Dan Vogel, I believe Simon Southerton, and one other, one other prominent um, person who were all very surprised at how Rod Meldrum tied in young earth creationism as much as he did with the Heartland model. Um, that was, that was the, the reaction I got from a lot of people. Like I'm surprised yeah. he did that. And, and I just wanted to maybe you to maybe discuss Rod's interview, presentation, great guy, love him. And, and maybe some of uh, your ideas that might be a little bit different than Rod's.
1: Well, you know, I'm, I'm one of these guys who, I wasn't there when the earth was created I don't have any personal knowledge of any of this and so I understand the young earth arguments I've been to even the museum there in um, near Cincinnati Mm -hmm. you know creation
0: creation museum Museum. Museum,
1: the Mm -hmm. ark I've been through all that stuff I've been through all the scientific the museums on evolution and so even the bean museum at BYU shows how evolution works you know so I've seen all the different perspectives. For a while, a few years ago, I did kind of a deep dive into all this. And I finally reached the conclusion that it's it's kind of like my faith model that we'll get to, hopefully. <laughs> it's um, you start off with what you believe and then you find evidence to justify it. That's all it boils down to. And, and so even for Thomas Murphy or Simon Southerton, they have a set of assumptions that they just accept. And that's fine. And Rod has a set of assumptions that he accepts, and that's fine. And they argue which one is the correct assumption, right? And I think the um, certainly the scientific community, we could say, and it's form which it really, but scientists agree with the um, how, how would you say other than the young Earth? There's there's a lot of different theories about how the Earth was created. I don't. It's not really a dichotomy, but let's say there's the young earth, there's maybe medium range (laughs) earth, and then there's the big bang, you know, four billion Mm -hmm. years ago.
0: Well, and you have like, for instance, you have Hugh Ross, uh, who's an old earth creationist, uh, astrophysicist from Toronto.
1: Um,
0: And so he can use the same evidence and use the same timeline of the universe. Then you have like the the intelligent design folk up at the Discovery Institute in Seattle uh, essentially an evangelical although there's a little bit of influence from the the Moonies church uh, the unification church uh, has some involvement with that as well um, so you have those you know if you will m- multiple working hypotheses as well right um and so yeah i i think that well and
1: even even outside the western tradition you have an islamic approach yeah. you have a hindu approach and Hindu, have... it's trillions trillions of years yeah yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and nobody, nobody that I know personally was there when it was created. So we're all taking facts that we have available to us, which are a microcosm of reality, right? But we can access a few facts and then we develop theories that explain the facts according to our own beliefs. It's all boils down to. And and anyone who says, well, they follow the facts, well, they're deluding themselves because their facts don't exist in there's no objective fact that exists without our interpretation you know it's like the idea that does a tree fall in the forest if there's no one there to hear it right facts don't exist in a vacuum I mean even space isn't technically a vacuum so anytime I hear someone's theory about how the earth was created I say well what are your assumptions and then they'll tell me And, you know, for the scientific method to work, you have to be able to consider multiple working hypotheses until you can exclude some. And as far as I've seen, no one's excluded any of these hypotheses. Some people rely on scripture as the most important. Other people rely on, um, let's say, radiometric dating or, you know, the various methodologies. But they're all based on different assumptions. So I I guess I don't want to say I'm... um, (laughs) <laughs> I'm agnostic maybe that is the word because I, I can't say from my own personal experience what happened and well, i when i did the deep dive i realized it's all based on what you want to believe
0: so one it's of the things alive. to me when i was talking to rod meldrum is like the uh, um that something can't come from nothing of course something is an idea that he ha- does not care for now of course as a christian yeah. we have the concept of cre- creation ex nilo right and if anything um, the Big Bang Theory essentially gives us creation ex Nilo. One of the reasons why, first of all, it was called a Big Bang Theory, it was uh, Hoyle uh, used that term derisively because right. many of the scientists believed in what was called a steady state theory of the universe. And, uh, and so they did not like the idea of a Big Bang because they said it sounds much too like the big opening chapter of Genesis. Yeah. So to me... The Big Bang, even though the young Earth creationists don't like it, it's like, dudes. I mean, this was
1: like, <laughs>
0: this, this, we, yeah. we we beat them. We beat
1: them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, well, that's that's an example. Yeah, I know. And then you have all the, it's, this whole idea of cosmology is fascinating.
0: Yeah. Well, and it is fascinating because, uh, like, for tomorrow, I'm going to be interviewing t- uh, Tarek Lacour, and he's a materialist. And part of the reason why he's a materialist, part of part of the reason he converted to the Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints, is because he did not accept the idea of the a non-corporeal God so that's what appealed to him and I also recognize that I can look at those same Hebrew scriptures and make the argument that is God as organizer as opposed to creator if we look at the Jewish text so um, multiple working hypotheses I'm willing to look at all of them Uh, so I just want to share you.
1: You, you know see this is this is what I my basic philosophy is people can believe whatever they want and they will believe whatever they want and evidence doesn't really matter and, and that's why, for me, this issue of Kimora, I, I keep coming back to this. And I had, I've had several of these uh, scholars down at BYU ask me, why do you keep talking about Kimora? And the reason I do is because it's it's the if, if the Book of Mormon is the keystone of our religion, Kimora is the keystone of the Book of Mormon. Because without that historicity, that's why Oliver Cowdery recognized this was so critical. He was responding to the Mormonism Unveiled book, which said that <laughs> Mormonism and Veil talked about the stone and the hat, the cis stuff. But they also had this Spaulding theory that Joseph was just reading a novel, right? That it was all fiction. But that's why Albert Cowdery recognized that in order to defeat the argument that it was fiction, he had to ground it in the fact of Cumorah, And he knew because he'd been in the repository himself there. So for me, the Cumorah is as I say, the, the keystone of the Book of Mormon because without Cumorah being accurate, you had, the Book of Mormon could literally have taken place anywhere or nowhere. So I keep coming back to that. And that's a materialistic approach, I guess. But once you have Kamora, and it makes sense and you can explain it, then from a materialistic standpoint, the whole narrative makes sense. So as far as cosmology, though, I'm happy for people to believe whatever they want. I mean, I don't even... I hate to say I don't have an opinion because I kind of do, but it's not really grounded in my right. own experience. Yeah, And yeah. a lot of these things, when even the, the PhD experts disagree about stuff, how are we going to make a decision that's informed? You know, we can. not And you have PhDs creationists as well. So, you know.
0: Yeah. well, it's interesting. I had a good Catholic friend of mine last summer took his family to the Noah's Ark Museum, Catholic, and they don't really have much of a creationist background. He was curious. I like people that are willing to think outside the box. Uh, You know, have you been to
1: there, the Ark?
0: Uh, I'm going to get there eventually, I'm sure, okay. somehow, someway.
1: It's pretty funny because when I was there, it happened to be kind of an off season or something. I had the place to myself. Basically, there are maybe 30 people there. So, I, I, you know, when you normally go, it's like a Disneyland ride. There's a long wait. And you go through and you can't have. So I was able to just walk around at, at leisure, take pictures of the whole thing and everything. When you first walk in, they talk about the creation and they emphasize how polygamy is evil. <laughs> It didn't make any sense. Other than I took that, of course, as a kind of anti-Mormon thing. But how does that fit in? I was wondering to myself because Genesis doesn't talk about it really, at least the first part. So anyway, <laughs> it was it was pretty funny, and, and there are a few other little digs at Mormonism throughout, you know. But and, and I take those with a grain of salt. That's all. That's all good. But I still appreciated the work that they've done. You know, I think they've made some plausible cases. Okay. Well, you
0: know, I, I think it's cool. You went and visited them and interacted with them. Did you by chance, like when talk to any of staff and say, Hey, I'm a Mormon by the way, or have any kind of conversations? No, I didn't do that. I, I, it's,
1: it's almost like going down to BYU and saying you're a heartlander, you know, you you just invite (laughs) reactionism because they have such a visceral reaction. You can't really talk to them once you admit you're a heartlander or you admit you're a Mormon, you know, they just can't have a dialogue
0: if i go to byu and say i'm a christian they'll flock to me so it's kind of interesting <laughs> well that's
1: yeah that's because that's like uh, well that's politically correct now right to to embrace the christians <laughs> <Yeah. Okay. laughs> which i which i've been doing for a long time but now it's cool you know now, now it's cool to do it that's right uh, you were cool
0: before it was cool just that. So, <laughs> yeah. um okay. so uh, real quick um uh i was wondering like okay so right there on your whiteboard there I see Jonathan Edwards and and I want to I want to talk about that and I think maybe we could tie this in with the idea of Sith a stone in the hat so one of the things that I found so fascinating about your work um, and of course I've done the book review everybody knows I love Jonathan Edwards and uh, the work that Jonathan um, Edwards Neville did um, to make this fantastic book infinite uh, goodness and um, I just felt like you really, when you first told me about the book for, while you were still working on it last spring, I was so fascinated about it that we actually kind of t- taped a preview of mm-hmm. the book. And then I had you on to talk about the book. And, <clears throat> and what I like about your approach is that you take the approach that you're going to use all the scholarship that's out there but then able to, and then actually not only just use the scholarship, but then contribute to the scholarship because of your work, right. very unique work of finding that Jonathan Edwards seems to be find its way throughout the book. And so it's a, it's a fascinating thing because basically you're, you're saying that Joseph Smith was a conventional translator, as opposed to somebody that was an automatic writer, if you will, or, right. or was just reading off something off of a stone. Um, I, I just have a quick question for you. One of the things that has been brought up to me is um, that well? And actually, let's just talk. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm working on this book too, folks. It's okay. in the stair stone, and I'm going to have Bill Davis on, and so we're going to talk. We're going to talk about. Yeah, Bill I himself. I read that one. Okay, cool. And uh, but also one of the things is the idea that a lot of Joseph didn't have to read Jonathan Edwards because all the pastors were using Jonathan Edwards phraseologies and terms as well.
1: Maybe speak to that a little bit. Okay. Yeah. One of the well, as I, as I told you, when I got into this, I was just interested in the non-biblical language in the Book of Mormon. I, I hadn't even thought of Jonathan Edwards. And I'd read, you know, there's, there's several people who have talked about uh, parallels between the Book of Mormon and various Christian authors. You have the late war and you have um, view of the Hebrews. But beyond that, they've made other people have noticed Jonathan Edwards, uh, George Whitfield, and others who had uh, similar phraseology to some aspects of the Book of Mormon. So I was familiar with that. In fact, there's a database. I can't remember who did it, but one of the, the Mormon book collectors has a CD or a DVD with, with a list of similar terms and so on. But when I was going through it, I looked at, I kept coming up with uh, Jonathan Edwards, and I couldn't figure out why that would be until I found that his book was on sale in the Palmyra bookstore that I chose to visit. And, and since then, in fact, just the other day, I came across a whole bunch more Edwards stuff in the Book of Mormon, but I thought certainly he could have heard it in sermons, but think about the, the likelihood of that. First off, um, it's hard to remember everything you hear in a sermon. You hear a few words. You don't hear um, these long phrases and, and memorize them. At least that's unlikely. That's why I think him reading made more sense. Plus, when he, he said, as I pointed out in that book, is when someone asked him about the restoration he started at a young age when he was six or seven right he had his leg surgery and he was laid up for three years he's not sitting around listening to christian sermons but he's reading christian books that's all there was to read and the newspaper, or the uh, the magazines and christian magazines and so on and so when when i did this analysis i deliberately limited it to what was available to him that we can show which was what was in the bookstore in palmyra now, I know other people, Michael Quinn and others, surveyed the entire Western New York to find if there is a book on magic in Rochester, you know, that kind of stuff. And none of that is plausible to me because they weren't they weren't traveling to those distances. He would go to Manchester and Palmyra and that was about it. And so, but these were were books available right in that bookstore and where he was described as being an inquisitive lounger. That's the word they use for him because he was hanging out there all the time. And so... When I limited my analysis to the books, I have that whole list of books. I've digitized most of them so I could do word searches. And other than James Hervey, which I mentioned in the book, everything was linked to Jonathan Edwards. Now, obviously the ministers were quoting Edwards. Other Christian writers would refer to Edwards or use the same terminology, but it was always originated with Edwards for the most part. So that's why I, I settled on that. And the other thing is we, we can't really tell how often he was going to hear Christian sermons because he talked to the one Methodist minister after he had the, the vision. But he didn't, after that, he was kind of turned off by it. His, you remember the account when his mother invited him to come to church and she, he said, look, I can learn more with the Bible in two hours in the woods than I can learn two years going to your, your church. So that's an indication that he was not going to church. He was reading and studying. And that comes out in, in the text. But it isn't only the text of the Book of Mormon. It's the early revelations and the Doctrine and Covenants and his personal writings. It's all the same. I've annotated all that. And it's all full of Edward's imagery, Edward's um, concepts even. In fact, the, the, the notable thing for me, or almost a surprising thing, was how much Edwards talked about America being preserved for the restoration of the gospel in the latter days. And he had debates with, um, I don't remember who it was, uh, the Isaac Watts, I guess, about this, because Isaac Watts thought England was the best. you know. <laughs> Edwards was saying, no, America is the best. And so they were having some debates about that. But he, Edwards really was um, influential, but he was also, uh, he, he was like the Elias for the restoration, as I put it. So I, I know critics are saying, Well, I didn't come up with anything new because we've known that there's an influence. Well, no one is, if, if someone else had done this, I wouldn't have done it. But no one has really looked at it in the amount of detail that I have. And I've annotated entire chapters of the Book of Mormon, and it's all King James or Edwards. And there's a few that, that are innovative, you know, that, that I can't, haven't found in other sources. There's another database called the Evans database of early uh, American writing that's in the word cruncher program. And you can find a lot of these same words and phrases scattered throughout that, but only in Edwards are they all there. And I think it's cool, you know, uh, marriage to his wife. He, and, and people say, well, then if I, I've, I've had, I've actually had some LDS critics Say that now. I'm saying Joseph Smith composed it based on Edwards, but I, as you as you pointed out earlier, I think he would he translated it. Any, any any translator, you can't determine whether someone translated something or composed it unless they tell you what they did because they're going to use the same syntax either way, mm-hmm. and that's why I think all the evidence of composition is also evidence of translation.
0: Uh, you just broke up briefly, one of the things that Jonathan was referring to is that how uh, he believes that Jonathan Edwards believed in eternal marriage. So I just wanted to clarify because you broke up slightly, okay. maybe they wouldn't have picked that up. Yeah, um, thank you. So, um, you know, that's, 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 that's what I've found so intriguing was this premise is that the, the, the he would influence the text. Um, to me, your idea of this happening. Well, first of all, like I've mentioned this before, as an evangelical, I like the fact that Jonathan Edwards is in the Book of Mormon. Now, some people have said, well, it was the same spirit that Jonathan Edwards had that was the same spirit that Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon have, and that it's not that he was copying, like for instance, this person was reading off the stone. He said those words were coming up because it was the the same spirit or the same ideas. Um, Maybe just address that
1: that's possible again I wasn't there right Mm -hmm. and so but what I look at is when he said translate does that mean reading off a stone I mean every bible at the beginning says translated from the original Greek and you know in Hebrew and so everyone knew what a translation was they knew that the King James was a translation the idea of a translation was not foreign or unusual at all in anywhere in, in English culture, you know, because of the King James Bible. So when, when Joseph said translate, at least when he was doing the Book of Mormon, it seems to me that that's what he would have had in mind. Plus he specifically said he copied the characters and translated the characters. Hmm. That's not seeing him in a stone on the hat. If he was reading off a stone on the hat, why copy him? You know, it's interesting that the Book of Mormon mentions that the, the interpreters, would magnify the words, and in that sense, it's almost like a magnifying glass, and maybe, or Orson Pratt said the engravings were real, very fine, maybe difficult to read even, and so when Joseph said he copied them, I assume he enlarged them to make them bigger, and then he could start to learn them. We don't know anything about the vocabulary. We have the characters document. we don't even know if that's legit, you know, and so on, But by him saying he copied the characters and translated that tells me he was engaging the characters on the text and then you know others said he looked on the the plates when he was doing the translation it's not just reading a words off a stone in the hat in my view now you know my theory about that was that he was doing a demonstration Mm
2: -hmm. and and i
1: think that's pretty evident because even later on in life when people would ask him for a revelation he would relate recite something to them and they say no we want you to use the stone <laughs> and he'd say okay so he'd say the same thing and look at a stone and that tells me that that's all that stone was it was for the benefit of his of his audience let's say or his followers not that something that he needed and so when he did the demonstration in, in the Whitmer home it was that same idea they wanted to know remember the girl was maybe I'm, I'm going too far a stream on this translation stuff but it gets to your question about the stone and the hat stuff and jonathan edwards i mean sure possibly the stone and the hat recited jonathan edwards and and we i call that the mysterious incognito supernatural translator the mist Mm -hmm. because who put the words on the stone you know some people say it was uh Wesley or maybe Moroni had learned 1500s English and he translated... I mean there's all these theories that to me are a little crazy but there are multiple working hypotheses but the simplest thing you know the um, (laughs) Dockham's razor approach is that Joseph Smith did what he said he learned the characters and then he translated them obviously through inspiration because any translator gets a variety of possibilities in their mind, they have to choose one and that's where the inspiration comes in. Mm. But that's how I see it, it's an Occam's razor deal.
0: Mm. What do you say to people Whether there's accounts that the plates were not often, as a matter of effect from what I've read is that uh, according to some of the sources I've seen is that, and this seems to be the dominant narrative that I'm familiar with, is that most of the time the plates weren't even in the room when he was doing the translation.
1: Yeah, okay. I, I don't know where the most of the time comes from. Okay. I know that uh, when, when I look at all those, I wrote a whole book about all the witnesses. And when I look at it, I say, okay, is the witness telling us what they physically observed or what they heard? And what they physically observed, are they? how much of that is what they observed and what they inferred? So for example, let's say we're in the room, they set up the demonstration in the Whitmer home. Joseph comes downstairs, he's got a stone, puts it in the hat, and starts dictating words. If I'm watching that, I could say, I could describe just that. Joseph Smith came downstairs, put a stone in the hat, and dictated words. That's a factual statement. If I say Joseph was translating the Book of Mormon, that's my inference. Because I don't know what he's doing. All I, all I can say he's doing is putting a stone in a hat and dictating words. If, as soon as I say what he was seeing on the stone, or even when I say he was dictating the Book of Mormon, that's an inference. If I say he was translating, that's an inference because translation is a mental process, right? And that's why this book you just mentioned, the stone vision in a stone, whatever it was, visions in a seer stone, yeah. visions in a seer stone. That's that's a plausible scenario because yeah, he could have memorized it. He could have been reciting a, a narrative that he had the highlights down like an outline that's all possible and that's consistent with him people observing him dictating from reading and stone of the hat but i was curious about something so i thought well all these people sitting around the table watching him dictate what did he actually dictate and nobody kept a record of that there's no chain of custody from that demonstration to the text we have today he could have been reciting the alphabet for all we know Now somebody probably would have mentioned that but nobody wrote down oh yeah I was there when he you know dictated page 37 of the Book of Mormon or something there's no link between that demonstration and the text that we have now my own theory is that he was dictating Isaiah from memory I explained all that before I think that explains the the minor discrepancies in, in the second Nephi from the King James Version and there's, there's about four or five chapters in particular, I think he was dictating on that occasion from memory. But that's just my hypothesis, nobody documented it. So whenever someone says the place weren't even present, then I think, okay, were they at a room where he was actually dictating the text of the Book of Mormon when the place weren't present? And there's nobody saying anything like that. Nobody has, has and, and this is, you know, as frustrating as a lawyer, you wish you'd have been there, you could have cross-examined some of these people because their testimonies are just, would, would be so easy to cross-examine. I would say, okay, David, just a minute. Tell me, how many days were you present? Because he said, he, he said, I wasn't there most of the time, right? Most of the time they translated upstairs, but I was present on this occasion when we had three scribes and they took turns and we were all sitting around the table that's the one he he always refers back to and i would say is there another occasion when you were present or just that one and if he said well only that one then i'd say okay now what did joseph dictate on that occasion you know see these are the kind of questions that we'd have to have otherwise we're just shooting in the dark and so someone could say and, and several of these are much later of course but i think they were people trying to build faith by relating what they'd heard as a, if it was a fact. It's just like today. I mean, I, I just saw a video of Brad Wilcox demonstrating the stone in the hat as if it was fact, but Brad Wilcox wasn't there. And yet someone listening to him would think he was relating a personal experience because he, he states it as a fact. And that's been my criticism of Russ Stone Rolling in several, well, throughout the book, Richard wrote things as if they were a fact when they were just an interpretation of the facts. Historians always do that. I probably do that myself. I try to always say, well, here's a possibility. Here's what I think happened or something. but Because you can't state as a fact something that you weren't a witness of. And that's what most of these testimonies about the Book of Mormon consist of.
0: So, um yeah, I, I wanna thank you for just the work that you did with the Jonathan Edwards book, because I just think you kind of opened up uh, some avenues there uh, uh, that people need to ponder and explore. So kudos to you for that. Um, is there, um, before we kind of move on, um, is there anything that we've covered so far that you want to go back to um, that you wanted, wanted to cover? Or do you feel like we're covering this pretty good? I, I think it's
1: enough, you know. We've been okay. going for a long time All right, already. great. So um, I guess one
0: of the things that's sitting behind that board behind us is you have the name DeLynn back there. Now, right. my viewers are probably sitting there like, okay, when is he going to get to DeLynn? See, this was actually pretty good, a pretty good tease you
1: came up here. I like what you did. Yeah. Um,
0: uh-huh. Maybe just let's maybe just bring up why you have John DeLynn's name written on that whiteboard.
1: Well, I put it on there partly because we've talked about him, you and I have, and, and he's so, um, he's frequently a topic of discussion on, on YouTube videos, right, plus he does a lot of YouTube videos himself, and I've listened to many of them, and so he's he established himself as kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, almost the head of a movement, really, you know, with his Thrive conferences and, and so on. And, and so I've been interested in in what he's done and i you know I don't know him personally I've tried to meet him and he hasn't responded and so on and i but i don't you know he's entitled to do his own thing when I watch it though I, I feel like he's he's very adept at converting normal human problems into blaming the LDS church and it's like um, it, I've had other discussions with former LDS people about various topics and it's it's a common thing for them to blame the church for things and one of the examples is the suicides in Utah you know when when in particular I have a friend who was blaming the church for all these suicides and I thought well is suicide unique to Utah you know that'd be my first question just looking at it analytically and suicide is actually a worldwide phenomenon in every culture you know and so if, if I was living in Mauritius and there were suicides, then they might blame, let's say the Hindus or a political party. Or there's always, people are always trying to assign blame to things. But suicide is a very complex topic, and there's a lot of, there's physiological elements as well as psychological as well as cultural, right? So to, to try to isolate one blame and assign it to that, the way I, and I, I'm not, I'm only using suicide as an example. I'm not saying John's doing this with that topic, although I think he has. To say it's the cause, or was caused by the LDS church to me is, is just creating a narrative for some ulterior motive. And a lot of times he has people on who have had trouble with um, in their marriages or in interpersonal relationships or at work or even working for the church. Whatever, which are common human experiences throughout the world and throughout history, but he's he he comes across as if it's all the cause of the LDS Church, and that it's it's effective, it's persuasive, I guess, because people were listening to it. But I feel like it's somewhat predatory for him to be doing that and to eliciting that kind of a narrative. And so, and, but that's fine. I mean, I could totally be wrong about that. I'm just saying, this is my impression from watching his interviews. I feel like he's manipulating people and he tries to make a big point. It's almost like he protests too much in, in a lot, a lot of the times and, and what he says now, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but blah, 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 then he'll put words in their mouth, you know? <laughs> so, like he did that a lot. Uh, well, I don't, I don't want to get into specific interviews, but so, and then the other side of it, I see in, in my view, getting, again, getting back to the Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards was anticipating and hoping for and trying to bring about the spread of Christianity throughout the world. And to try to bring to pass the, the long foretold prophecies about how the knowledge of Christ would be found throughout the world, which the Book of Mormon also talks about, of course. And but the only the purpose for that is to establish Zion, to create a, a perfect society where people can realize their full potential, love one another, everything be positive, right? And that's what the church is doing at a, at an accelerating pace. And I don't I wrote a little novel called Before the World Finds Out. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the idea is that there's all this stuff going on that the world doesn't even know about that the church is doing that's awesome. Hmm. Like the um well, the uh, pathway program for education, the you know the initiatives for self-reliance and so forth. I mean there's the church is teaching people how to correct logical thinking errors. It's in the curriculum. And I've been teaching these classes myself on logical those are the kind of things that can change society hmm. and and change the world, even if they're not LDS. Just those initiatives that only the church is doing that I'm aware of is providing this kind of education on a low to no cost basis to everyone in the world. And so, and it's it's mentored, you know, there's always missionaries involved with this. So it's not just people reading stuff on the internet, there's interaction, they're teaching one another and so on. And John Delyn is kind of undermining all that effort, all that positivity. And he he protests that he's not, but he is, and he knows he is, and his viewers know he is. And so I would I would say that I'd be happy to have this discussion with John at some point. And I think his uh, the other thing about him that I think is is ironic, he 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 relies a lot on Sith, right? He, he says Sith is one of the main reasons people leave the church. He says Ruston Rowling is one of the main reasons, and Von Brody's book. And and the whole thing about the uh, lack of evidence for the Book of Mormon and all that. That's based on the M2C stuff, because you know, I, I don't think many people take the May- the Mayan connection very credibly outside of the, the M2C bubble. And so John uses all those, but he, and and to his credit, he's using the words of the LDS scholars. And that's where I disagree with both him and the scholars. You know, this, but I have Sith Delyn, I could put um, you know. Dan Peterson and Jack Wells, all those guys all teach the same things about the Book of Mormon and about the, the translation. I disagree with all of them on it. And, and that's why I guess I, I put Dylan on there as, as sort of a um, place marker so we could have a little bit of a discussion about what is going on with the, the, the quote-unquote anti-Mormon <laughs> narrative. I don't like that term either. I don't think it's a legitimate term I think it's an apologist term that is I agree it's just pejorative it doesn't really contribute
0: anything well it is because I think and I just want to this is where our worlds come together you know I grew up basically reading anti-mormon literature and there's a lot of there's a lot of garbage out there and a lot of propaganda but probably some of the most important anti-mormon scholars were the tanners yeah who were just documenting the history And making it available to BYU professors. Yeah, the church was not making it available to them. Right. And I just want to say that when you call the uh, the uh, the Tanners anti-Mormon, that is a slur. Right. Because they they never ever. There's a story that I I want to tell, but I don't know <laughs> if I I don't know if I can tell you yet because yeah. I think it's going to be in Sandra's book, and I don't. And she's told me the story, that early on. When the Tanners started interacting with the church, Christian churches, he had some interesting conversations with the clergy. Let's just put it that way. But uh-huh. basically, the Tanners didn't have an anti-Mormon in their body, Mormon bone in their body. They they loved the people of the church, and they just wanted the people to know the history of that church. I'm sorry, going to step off my soapbox now, but I just <laughs> wanted to share that because I think it's important yeah. that when we have these conversations. We need to think outside of these boxes and all these uh, all these all these things that have been put between us and realize that when when sandra tanner was given a place of honor at the mormon history association this place past june when she was there for the murder among the mormons forum um, that really kind of shows now yeah. the place that where the tanners belonged all along
1: i can give you an analogy when i was young uh, you know i was afraid of the russians I thought the Russians were going to come and kill us and everything, right? And then I think it was when I was in college, I met the first Russian in my life. Now, you have to realize I was living in Germany. I went to scout camp. I was eight miles from the border of Czechoslovakia when the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia. Wow. And we were listening on, on our radios because we were afraid they were going to come and get us, you know? Yeah. And and so I was terrified of the Russians my whole life. I I've been to West Berlin. We had to go through East Germany. We couldn't get off the train, you know. And you get there and there's checkpoint Charlie. So I grew up with that whole narrative, which anyone born in the last 20 or 30 years has can't even imagine, because you know that that hasn't existed. So I grew up with this fear of Russians. I met a Russian, perfectly nice guy. And then I, since then, I've gone to Russia and done business and stuff. And I got to know Russians quite well. And in Moscow, they have this um, sculpture. Well, it's not a sculpture. It's an actual ICBM pointed towards the United States. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, it doesn't have any fuel in it. But it, it shows that that was the history. And I said, why were you guys trying to nuke us? And they said, we weren't trying to nuke you. You were trying to nuke us. You know? And so it was this whole false narrative, really, of the two sides threatening each other and getting their populations agitated. And that's kind of what the LDS apologists have been doing. They've been, they've been making um, LDS people afraid to look at church history because they say it's all anti-Mormon stuff. And the Tanners have been awesome. You know, I, in fact, they were one of the ones, Sandra has a, a link on her page about the Hill Camorra. And she points out right there, all the prophets have taught the Camorras in New York. But your scholars say it's not. Who do you believe? Your prophets or your scholars, you know? And that's, she's right, totally right on the money on that. And so, and I, my own view of, of church history is that the more I learn about it, the better it is. For The more it confirms my bias, <laughs> let's say. But, but, you know, seriously, I think the more I learned about the translation or about the language of the Book of Mormon, the more it corroborates what Joseph and Oliver said all along. And I think the Tanner's, to their credit, did a lot of good bringing out that information. That's only made things better. What, what's happened is, though, so there's a lot of um, narratives that were developed, like the Stone of the Hat narrative, that are undermining people's faith because who wants to believe that the Book of Mormon came from basically the, the equivalent of a crystal ball? You know, this the whole narrative is a soothsayer. I call it a soothsayer, but it's the same idea. I mean. Okay, I'm not saying it didn't happen because I wasn't there. If people want to believe in the Book of Mormon that it came from a crystal ball, fine. To me, it doesn't make sense and it's not what Joseph and Oliver said. So anyway, that's that's why I think Delin came up as just kind of a,
2: mm-hmm.
1: a plug-in for that whole area of Mormon discussion about the history and, and yeah. the other yeah. issues.
0: And actually, folks, I just want to say, you know, for those of you who want to see a really interesting graphic novel called The Glass Looker by Mark Elwood, he illustrates the myth and folklore as well of Joseph's time. So it's it's just a, it's an interesting thing because it is giving you a narrative now I, I liken it to there were early stories about the apostles that were going around that are, are Prokofil. It's kind of in that same vein. Yeah, some, of it's, yeah. some, of it, some of it's true, some of it's not. It's, it's, it's kind of an interesting approach that he takes. So I just want to mention, check out my interview with Mark. Uh, the Glass Slipper is an interesting publication to check out as well. Oh. Um, so um, this has been a really cool conversation we're having here. It's been, I think we're about 90 minutes in and I'm loving every minute of it. I, I, I wanted to, I think it's important that we get into the acronym We'll have okay, they're yeah. the faith model and I, I want you to kind of
1: break that down. I'm going, I'm going to erase this and spell it out so we have it easier. Great. Let's do
0: it. Let's. Okay, I'm ready to be taught here. I love this. All right, folks, all right. There, go, there goes our outline. Yeah. And fortunately, fortunately, I have it written down on my pad in case I need to go back to it, so it's all good. Well,
1: so, you have it on video, too, now. <laughs> of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. So, can we see that okay all right yep. mm-hmm. so i've been for a long time now i've been pondering the um, what causes people to have faith because if you look at a world map of religion it seems like it's all regional mm-hmm. for the most part regional right yep. so muslims live in their countries hindus live in theirs Buddhists, you know christians even the different christian denominations you have catholic and protestant and it's it's almost geographical which means that it's a tradition Right, mm-hmm. it's hereditary, basically, yep. and and then you have a few people who convert from one thing to another. People convert uh, to Christianity from, say, uh, Buddhism. You know, whatever. There's there's a, a kind of a, an aura of conversion going on. Almost, you can almost think of it as um, the protons in an atom spinning around. You know, always moving, but the core is the the nucleus of the atom, and that's the religious people. So. I thought, well, what, what causes people to have these beliefs, and yet they they can all be either well-educated or completely uneducated, and it almost doesn't matter, you know? And so I, I thought of this analysis, and I thought I'd use FAITH as the acronym because that's easy to remember, but it also fits. So the first thing is you start with facts. And facts are, something everybody can agree on you know the the distance of the sun from the earth whatever and in in our case i'll use the analogy of um one that i've written in my uh the manuscript i'm working on when lucy mac smith said that when moroni came he told joseph smith there were plates in a hill in the hill of Cumorah. according to lucy that's what he said the very first time he met joseph smith okay so i'm going to use that as my My example here. So, the. Okay, that's Lucy Mack Smith. Everybody can agree that she dictated that in her history because we can all read in the Joe Smith papers.
0: So, just real quick, you know, a lot of people use the criticism. Well, that was written years later, a long time ago. Okay, that's nice. Go ahead. but I just want to make an observation: is that she didn't say Hill Kamora. Right. She said Hill of Kamora. In other words, she's not using the terminology It was understood at the time. I think that's an interesting thing. Yeah,
1: although it was in the land of Kamora. That's so, fine, but
0: I think yeah. Hill Kamora comes off. That was that was the, the the In other words, she's maybe remembering something that that predates the term. Hill oh, it,
1: was, it, it would have predated the Book of Mormon for sure. Right. Exactly. That's a really good point. Okay. So, but everybody in the world, regardless of your religion, can agree that that's a fact that she dictated that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a fact. That's what I mean. Then you have assumptions. People make assumptions about the facts. So I'll I'll go through the whole thing before I apply it to the Hill of Kimura, but just to start off with, You can assume that she told the the truth, that she lied, or that she was misinformed, right? It is all an assumption. And from the assumption, then you go to the inferences, or interpretations. And this is where you start saying, okay, here's a fact, here's what I assume, and here's how I kind of support my assumptions, right? The next one is what I call threading or weaving. Where you take all other extrinsic elements and weave them into a narrative, and then you end up with your hypothesis. your narrative and the funny thing is here your hypothesis is basically your assumption okay so you just can there's another way of showing how you confirm your bias but i wanted to to break it out a little bit more to see the different elements that go into it and so just starting with this hill of kimura When I look at that, I assume, okay, Lucy's telling the truth. I mean, she was Joseph's mother. She specifically said she wanted to relate things that he had never written down, but that she remembered. And she had related this account many times to the point where she was exhausted from relating it, so she wanted it recorded. Okay, So for me, that's a very credible source, even if it was in 1844 which was 20 years after the fact, you know, a mother tends to remember things that her son tells, especially something like this, right? So I give her the benefit of the doubt. I tend, my assumption is that she's correct. You know,
0: Jonathan, just to say, you know, my mom tells me stories from my childhood I don't remember. Yeah. And things yeah. that I said, even, yeah. even at a relatively old age. So that's a good yeah.
1: point. Yeah, and then, but you have other people who will say, no, she was wrong. She incorporated a later um, mm-hmm. you know, false tradition. That's the MTC people. Mm-hmm. And then you have other people that say, no, it was all made up anyway. Even if Joseph said that it was all a hallucination or a fantasy or something. So your assu- people make their assumptions just when they read that. They don't have to go any farther than just reading those words in the document and they make an assumption. Then they go to the inferences. And I, because I infer that she was telling the truth, and I interpret what she said to make sense, then I find all the other evidence that corroborates that and I thread it together. And then that leads to my hypothesis that the Hilkmore is really in New York. The M2C people will say, Well, she's lying, and the reason is. They infer that it was because it, she misremembered or adopted a later theory, and then they thread in all their stuff about it's too far from Central America and so on, and so it confirms their bias that she was incorrect. And then someone who doesn't believe anything about LDS would say, For, even if she was, it was Joseph's hallucination, and here's all the evidence that he was, you know, <laughs> making it up or reading, uh, you know, seer stone and so on. So I like this faith approach because it lets me isolate different arguments that people make. And I can say, okay, if, if you're saying that Lucy Mack Smith was telling a lie or misremembering because of articles in the 1842 Times and Seasons, that's not <laughs> that, that is purely confirming your assumption up here. It's not a legitimate analysis. And that's why I, I like this approach. I use it all the time now, and I'm explaining it more in my book than I'm doing. I have a book coming out called The Rational Restoration. And I'm, I love I'm, it. Kind, of, I'm kind of applying the um, almost a materialistic approach, naturalistic approach to all this stuff and showing, hey, you, know, you, you don't have to rely on magical thinking to explain all this stuff. Sure, there's some magical thinking in the sense that an angel a resurrected being appears to somebody, Mm-hmm. That's magical thinking. But Moroni didn't do the translation. Moroni didn't go to the printer, you know. Joseph did all of that. And Oliver helped him. I think, by the way, I think there was a lot of interaction between Joseph and Oliver when they were doing the tax. I think Joseph said, Well, what if, how about if I do it this way? And Oliver said, Well, I don't understand that, you know. I think there was a little bit of that going on. That's why you see so often it says, or in other words, you know, which mm-hmm. was a, Another Edwardsian thing he used all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, anyway, so that's my approach to this.
0: I, I, I think that's great the, the, that you're giving us like the framework of what you use to when you encounter a fact or an idea that you're going to use that to break it down. I think that's very helpful. I find that very interesting. You know, one of the things I want to talk about too, which I find interesting, is that, um, you know, so often people describe the process of reading from the stone.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then the word would not uh, disappear right. until they got the right correct spelling down. Now, on my way from the Joseph Smith Papers Project, I'm going to be getting um, the photos of all the original pages from the Book of Mormon and um, from the, uh, the handwritten. And one of the things that what people will tell you is that the handwritten account is full of spelling errors and that Grandin had to make a ton of uh, corrections. Yep. So, to me, it's like that the initial forensic document that we have to me disproves and, and this is just my opinion because i'm I really' right. am open. You're I really right. want it. but it the, the the initial evidence
1: discredits the means of describing the process of the translation using yeah. the stone. yeah, it does. and it, and and the royal Skoen pointed that out too. He said, I don't know what they're talking about because not only is there a misspelling and misspelling is hard to really assess because it wasn't a standardized spelling as much correct but Mm -hmm. there's different spellings Mm -hmm. so the same word is spelled different ways so if (laughs) the idea that joseph was correcting everybody what i suspect happened is on one occasion at one time joseph had someone read back or whatever and he corrected them, Mm -hmm. or maybe he he was he was uh, doing a translation and he felt like, I better make sure they spelled that right, you know? And then that became lore. That became a narrative. They said, oh, he always was correcting the spelling. It was miraculous. When it actually maybe never happened or if it did, it happened once or twice. And all of a sudden that becomes always. Because you're right, the, the original manuscript shows lots of spelling discrepancies and not a lot of corrections of spelling.
0: So I just find uh, these conversations with you uh, really, truly fascinating, Jonathan. Uh, I wanna thank you for taking your time. Oops, I wanna uh, thank you for taking your time and I hit the wrong button <laughs> there for a second uh, to do this with me. Uh, you know, It's always fascinating uh, just to have uh, original thinkers like you. So like I tell people, so I wanna to talk to interesting people. I don't wanna hear just the standard narrative re- re- rehashed to me. I just wanna hear people that have different approaches and different ideas. Um, and creative ways of telling their story and giving their presentations. Now, sometimes, obviously, folks, you know, Jonathan has ruffled feathers. Uh, I know there's a few people out there that like to write about him a lot, and I've read some of your stuff, just so you know. But uh, I and actually, one there's two people that kind of write about you a lot, and I want to say there's one guy who's a student at BYU who I've talked to. Um, he's not the main, he's not the like the big guy that goes after. He's one of, uh, but he's a cool dude. Um, uh, he's a student at BYU. I actually had him on a Zoom call to make he kind of wrote a piece about you and I, and I, I said, hey, we got to talk, Because you got to make some corrections on this, and boy, 45 minutes later after I have a Zoom call, you made those corrections, so props to you, dude, um, and I just want to say there are good people that we can disagree on things, and we can have civil conversations. We can bri- build bridges. I can look at your arguments that you made today, and as an evangelical, uh, take something from it that's valuable, um, and, and it's not convoluted when somebody tries to explain to me that no 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 the the academic position is is that words appeared on the stone yeah that i have a hard time (laughs) i have a hard time with that right and so i think yours is more naturalistic yours can uh, um is less like you said less supernatural Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's it also puts joseph there in the room engaging the, the text and I, I really think that that seems that just seems to ring true
1: to me. So that's just my it, opinion. You know, it's it's funny to me because even that the 1834 book Mormonism Unveiled pointed out how ridiculous the stone and the hat idea is. And they they said, okay, some people say he used this stone seer stone and a hat. Other people say he used a urim and thummim. But in neither case he was using the plates. And if that's the case, then who cares what the whether the witnesses saw the plates or not you know, if he wasn't using them. So that's that's a pretty good point. And that's what Oliver Cowdery was addressing Mm -hmm. when he wrote those letters. And now to, to have this all kind of come back again, but not only come back, but be embraced by the LDS intellectuals, it's just stunning to me.
0: And I had a conversation with Richard Bushman and I actually gave a theological apologetic defense in favor of the Seer stones with him, so I'm, I'm okay. telling you that I also think that one can make an apologetic defense in favor of the Seer stones Definitely too. Could. and and so I think that that's where I'm at too. I just really like to look at all the all the ideas and the positions that are out there, and as an outsider, then try to integrate it and try to come up with ideas in my like how do I think it happened, so using your faith model or a variation of that. And and it, I think that's just a kind of a cool experiment that's going on here. This channel is an experiment. I mean,
1: this is this this, this is uncharted. Is awesome. I, I love what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like I pointed out, you know, in my, some of my slides, I've, I've shown all these people going in the temple, and some of them might believe MTC, Heartland, that the Book of Mormon is a pious fiction, you know, doesn't really, none of this stuff matters what you believe if you're doing good and building Zion, right? And, and what you're doing to me is building Zion. Not, mm-hmm. I, I was going to do a book called Zion Without Us and show how the whole world is, is collaborating to build Zion without the LDS church because we kind of lost that ideal for a while, you know, got more into these inter-Nicene wars and stuff. And what you're doing is building Zion, not within the LDS church as an organization, but you're contributing to unity and harmony and people recognizing what's important and what isn't important. And all these issues that I talk about on, on our list here today, they're important in the sense that people may... Um, Build faith on them or on alternatives. And the only, the the utility of faith in the modern world is to help build Zion to become more Christ-like and to unite people. That's what it's all about. And so I'm not trying to cause any division. I'm not I don't even I'm not trying to persuade anybody of anything. I'm just trying to say, here's how I see it.
2: Hmm.
1: I'm Happy if the guy I uh, work at the cannery with believes in Mesoamerica, that's fine with me. The thing that I resist is when people um, pronounce these, what I consider unbelievable narratives, like the Mesoamerican thing, to me, that's unbelievable. And the stone and hat is un- not believable to me. And But I find if people believe it. I just don't want to be told, you have to believe that. And that's where I fault the LDS scholars, because they're intransigent. They, they will only present their own point of view. And like you're presenting a variety of points of view that's what Book Mormon Central should have a podcast just like this, and they refuse to do it because their, their whole obsession is that they think they have the answer and they are trying to promulgate it. They're spending millions of dollars every year promoting this Mesoamerican stuff, which excludes people who see through it, or I should say, who don't accept it seeing through it is a little pejorative, but, but they don't accept it. People like me don't accept that. So if, for me, Book Mormon Central is a negative despite the good stuff that they have. So I think what you're doing, you're setting a, an example for the LDS scholars to broaden their horizons, to acknowledge that they don't have all the answers and they should be amenable to alternative points of view. Now, I would I would agree that they should limit it to alternative faithful points of view. I'm not saying they should have John DeLynn featured on Book of Mormon Central, but they should have other people who interpret the same evidence in a faithful way that disagree with the scholarly conclusions. That's all I've advocated. That's <laughs> what I was telling Hannah, getting back to that conversation. Because I, I said, you know, you should have people, Heartlanders, so to speak, although I let's call them Kamora-centric, they should speak at all the Book of Mormon Central events as well as the Meso people. It's just not a legitimate academic exercise and it's even a less legitimate religious exercise to insist on one doctrinaire interpretation of the evidence. So, but again, and I can't say it enough. I mean, what you're doing is awesome. You're providing people opportunity to hear for themselves what other people think and they can accept or reject or embrace or whatever they want to do with it but at least they you know how other people are understanding the same evidence and, and what their ulterior motives are. Mine is for unity and harmony throughout the world.
0: Mm.
1: I've lived in Africa and, and all these other places. So anyway.
0: Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because that's one of the things that really struck me was early on the idea of uh, like Zion or the Zionic imperative or just different terminologies using the term Zion. And I I tell my Christian friends that you know the the, the restorationist idea of Zion would be a, similar to our view of the millennium. But what I find interesting about the Zionic idea is that you're you're a participant in building something. Right. And I think that there's something that in, in that that all of humanity in one sense could be part of the building up of something that could also help uh, bring us to a better place, like within the context of whether it's a second coming or building a better society, however, whatever level you want to put it on. And I often th- I've often i been contemplating the idea of Zion and as understood within the concept of restoration. And I actually think that's something we could probably learn from you guys. I think that maybe we could well, integrate
1: that idea. You don't need to learn it from us. You just need to help us do it. <laughs> Okay, you you don't even you don't need to join any church. This is what I say about the Book of Mormon. Nobody has to join a church to love the Book of Mormon, right? Right. Nobody has to join any church to build Zion. Mm -hmm. It's it's a process of education, recognizing logical fallacies, but having a desire to benefit humanity. You know, one of the things that I most like about what President Nelson has been teaching. When, when he came to Singapore a couple of years ago, we were in China. And we flew down to for the event, and he he pointed out that the more capable we become through our education and developing our talents, the better we're able to serve other people, and and that is such a profound teaching. I mean, in, in one sense it's obvious, but in another sense, no one's or very few people are doing it, using their their education, their resources to benefit other people and and humanity now sure there's lots of ngos and so on that are doing that kind of work but i think the the christian community in general seems to be fairly um satisfied that they're going to church and they're good you know (laughs) no they should be out there working on the welfare farms they should be out there doing uh rescues and environmental catastrophes they should be out there helping People get educated. I mean, the pathway program alone is phenomenal. And and, and we have non-LDS people participating even in the group that we're in, you know. You know, and you don't have to be LDS or even part of the restoration to build Zion in those ways. And that's what I'm really enthusiastic about and most passionate about. In fact, just I give you one last example. Here in, in Oregon, they have a teacher shortage because they're having to cancel high school classes and stuff because they can't get teachers. So my wife said, well, we ought to be substitute teachers. And I'm thinking, it's the last thing I have time for, but I see there's a need, so we're doing that now. And once we get back from our next trip, we're going to be substitute teaching in the schools just to help out, you know, as a community Mm -hmm. service. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's kind of part of building Zion, right? You're helping the kids get educated, And anything people can do to make the world a better place even in their neighborhood is building Zion.
0: Well, you know, first of all, thanks for the kind words that you said about my program. I I love you, Jonathan, and everything you're doing. Uh, I love having you on, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you again soon. Sometimes our paths will physically
1: cross, I'm sure, soon. Um, Thanks for coming on. for having me, and it's been a pleasure as always. And we'll just see what happens in the next, in the future. That's right. So uh
0: okay. did you have any final words you had to say because it looked like you're gonna yeah. say something okay just looking forward to seeing you sometime maybe i'll come out to florida one of these days so. awesome awesome all right so folks i just want to thank you for joining us today i just want to remind you to uh like and subscribe uh don't forget that we do have a patreon so those of you who would like to be monthly contributioners contributors to the program uh, please uh, sign up with us on patreon and i'll try to remember to leave a link for patreon on there i've been forgetting to do that you can reach me at MormonBookReviews@gmail.com. at gmail.com and don't forget that our Uh, We're still working on the podcast, but about 80 of our videos are now on um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as Google Podcasts. We're hoping to uh, uh, expand to a couple of the platforms soon as well. Uh, Either way, you have yourself a great day and be well.